Good morning. It's great to see you. Glad you're so friendly today. It's good to be together. My name's Dave. If you're new around here, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I need to say just one quick sort of technical correction. Um, I'm always nervous about correcting Pastor Gabby, but you cannot get to heaven by filling out the I'm here card. This is not our sort of doctrinal belief on that. I want to make sure we're clear there. Um, although you can get a lot of great stuff, and I think that's what she meant, so we're okay. Now, hey, I'm really excited this morning about this new series that we're diving into today um, through the book of James. And I want to start this morning by just getting right into the scripture. And so if you have your Bible with you, um, grab it and open to James chapter 1. If you, you want to use a Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 977. If you're trying to find James, it's at the very end of the Bible, like this much left. So we're almost to the end of the book when we get to James. Find James 1. I'm going to read the passage all the way through, verses 1 through 18 this morning. And, and then we're going to dive in and say, what is James saying uh, to his readers in the first century, and then also to us um, in this opening section. And there's some great, great things in here as we dive in. So here we go. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning as we dive into your word, um, we ask you, Spirit, to bring it to life um, in our minds and hearts. God, I'm asking today for you to take the words that I've prepared and some that I haven't and that you would use 
your word and these words to highlight things in our lives that need attention, that you would tailor make this message for each one in this room and for us as a community and for our church, that we could be the people that you long for us to be, Lord. We surrender to you. We open our minds and hearts to your spirit and the work that you want to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Right away, as we dive into this letter, we discover that James is writing to a certain group of people. He's writing to Jewish followers of Jesus. He calls them the 12 tribes. That's sort of code language for people who are of the Jewish faith and are now following Jesus. And he says that they have been scattered among the nations. This is an interesting phrase and it tells us something of their situation. It tells us that most likely through persecution... These are folks who have been driven away from home. They have been driven out of Jerusalem. They no longer live where they feel most at home and most comfortable and surrounded by people like them. They're no longer actually living amongst people who believe in their God. In other words, James writes to communicate, uh, or to some communities of Jesus followers who live out in the pagan world, the secular world, in a world that says, we don't believe in your God and we don't accept your values. He's writing to followers of Jesus who live in places like Portland, Oregon. And that is no exaggeration, where the prevailing and popular worldview is not Jesus is Lord, where people approach life from a different perspective. And so we should be able to relate with these folks. And first of all, I want to be real clear. James says, you're living out in the world with people who don't share your God, with people who don't share your values. But James doesn't say, so make those people your enemy or be against them or sort of, sort of stay away from them and just do your own thing. It is not what he says. But what he does say is this, don't be compromised by the world you're living in. Don't let their worldview, don't let what they are living for infect and change and corrupt what you are living for and who you're called to live for as followers of Jesus. Because right away, James tells us who he's living for. He says in his introductory sentence, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a very straightforward but sort of interesting introduction for James. Because most scholars, and I myself also, believe that this is James, the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. James, who is actually the brother of Jesus. Right? But what we notice here is that he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm James, and a lot of people knew Jesus. A lot of people hung out with him and spent time with him, but I grew up with him. Right? He doesn't lob the brother card. He doesn't say, look how special I am. I'm the brother of Jesus. Because you know what? I think that's what I would have done. I would have totally been like, hey, you know, you think you know Jesus? I knew him better. We shared a room. We had bunk beds. He was on top and I was on bottom. I saw him in his underwear. No, James doesn't say any of that stuff. He just simply says this, I'm writing as a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word he actually uses there, uh, servant, is a very powerful Greek word. It's the word doulos. 
doulos. Does anyone know what that word literally means? Slave. Slave. He says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's a word that kind of affronts us, doesn't it? it? It makes us a little uncomfortable. And I would argue this. It's supposed to. James wants us to know in no uncertain terms that his life is fully and completely surrendered to Jesus. That his life is about a story that is so much bigger than his own. That he has given everything to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's his master. And he writes this letter to say this, I long for you, church, out in the world, to live in exactly the same way. And as we get into this letter, you'll find that James is passionate about this. He's actually, and you've seen this already in the, in the opening verses, he's actually very blunt. He tells it like it is. James is a straightforward communicator, and he communicates with a lot of honesty and a lot of urgency. One guy I read this week said, James is kind of like talking to your mom. And I could totally relate to that, because some of you will understand this, because you have a mom like this. People in the world will tell you things, but they're cordial and kind and polite, and they sort of they sort of skirt around a little bit and they soften the blow. You know, they, let me give you an example. Some of you in the church, mostly you ladies, will say to me from time to time, "So, I see that you wear that beard all the time. Does your wife like that beard?" And I know what you're saying. You're saying, because I don't like the beard, and I can't imagine that your wife likes the beard. You, women in the church have said this to me numerous times. You know who you are. And here's and a couple a couple realities. A, my wife does like the beard. That's why I keep it. But here's the, how my mom approaches that same subject. She will get off the plane. I will meet her, you know, at the, like, you're allowed to go into the airport area. She comes down the escalator. There she is. She'll come up. She'll give me a hug and she'll say, ah, you're still wearing that mangy, shaggy beard, huh? I was like, she doesn't pull any punches. There's no softening of the blow. She's just right to the point. And that's how James is. He goes right after it with us and he communicates with urgency. And here's why. Because James knows that our perspective in this life can be broken down into two worldviews, two ways of living, two ways of seeing reality that actually sit on the opposite ends of a long spectrum, two ways of thinking about how things are. One, at one end, we have this story, this way of looking at reality. The first story says, this world is all that there really is, so get yours Make the most of it and do whatever you need to do to maximize your power and pleasure and fulfillment and personal satisfaction. That's story number one. In our day, we call this a secular or naturalistic worldview, but it's been around for a really long time and it was alive and well when James wrote this letter. That's story one. And then on the other side, there's the second story. The biblical story, the story James is living as a servant of Jesus Christ. And that story is much different than the first. That story says, this world is not all there is. And in fact, it's just a blip. It's passing away. And furthermore, there is an eternity beyond it. 
In chapter 4, James will say it this way when we get there. He asks the church this question. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He's saying, this world, your life here on this planet, in this time, it seems significant, it seems huge, it may even feel like it's all that there is, but compared with the eternity in which it sits, it's like a mist that vanishes. So there's our spectrum. And in our passage today, James talks to us about the impact of trials and temptations and adversity and struggles for people who sit on various points of this spectrum. Because when you encounter difficulties in this world, trials in this world, struggles in this world, depending on your worldview, depending on how you're seeing and approaching life, those moments are going to feel much different to you. And James is going to encourage us today to move down the spectrum towards story number two. And what he says is this, the worldview you have will radically shape your approach to trials in this life. I don't know if you saw it or not, but uh, huge Hef- Hugh Hefner passed away this week. Did you see that? Did you catch that in the news? Um, maybe you did some reading about Hugh this week. It was all over the place. Uh, I'd argue that Hugh is a guy who epitomizes story one. I mean, if story one is true, if this world is all there is, then Hugh did it right. He nailed it. 10 out of 10 for Hugh. Because he had money and he had power and he had fame and he was surrounded all the time by beautiful women. If you are a story one person, Hugh Hefner should be celebrated and idolized. But this week, Hugh hit the ultimate trial of this world. He encountered the biggest adversity of all. The trial of all trials. Death. And now his blip is over. Now his mist has vanished. And what we learn from Hugh and what we see from James in this passage is this. If you are living for this world, if you are living story number one, then trials and struggles and adversity and suffering, anything that gets in the way of your success and satisfaction and happiness in this life is nothing but terrible news. If you are a story one person and this world is all that there is, then any adversity is just something to get around and over and past. There's nothing positive about it at all because it gets in the way of what matters most. And that's this. I want everything I can get in this life. Satisfaction and enjoyment and pleasure here and now is all that really matters. That's what James actually says in verses 9 through 11. He's giving us an example. He says, if you are someone who is rich in this world, and that's what you're living for, you're living for the riches of this world. If you are someone who has been given a lot on this planet, a lot in terms of money, but not just money, a lot in terms of intelligence, a lot in terms of beauty or popularity or success, a lot in terms of comfort or pleasure, and that's what defines your life. That's what gives you hope and satisfaction and meaning, then James says this, you'd better enjoy it while it lasts because at some point, it's all going away. And that may happen before you die or it may happen when you die, but at some point, guaranteed, 100%, you're going to lose it all. Here's how he says it. 
The rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises to the scorching heat and withers the plant. It blo- it, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And likewise, he flips it over and says, this isn't just a lesson for the rich. It's also a lesson for the poor. He says, if you're a poor person, if you're someone who doesn't have a lot, who's not filled with the blessings of this life, he says, don't be consumed with acquiring what you don't have. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. In other words, if you are a have-not, it's easy to focus your life on becoming a have It's easy to think, man, if I could only get, if I could only acquire more money, more popularity, more success, more pleasure, then my life would matter. And even though you're a have-not, not not a have, you spend your life trying to change your status. You can live, you can actually live a story-one life just as much as the rich person who's living for their stuff. You see, all of us are tempted, no matter what our our status in this world, to pursue the story one life. Let me give you an example. Let's pretend you are a freshman in high school. Some of you are freshmen in high school. Some of you are going to be freshmen in high school. And some of you were freshmen in high school. Some of you a long time ago, freshmen in high school. At any rate, if you're a freshman in high school and you're popular, and that popularity is what defines your life, it's what gives you joy, it's what gives you meaning, it's what makes you who you are, then any trial that threatens that popularity will not be good news at all. No positive thing about the threat to your popularity. Likewise, if you are not popular, if you are a freshman and you're a nobody, no one even knows you exist, but what you really want in life is just to be popular, just to get people to notice you and celebrate you and accept you, then likewise, any trial or struggle that prevents you from getting where you're trying to get is also really bad news, period. If your life's consumed with popularity, anything that gets in the way of that, bad. That's a story one life. If you are someone living for the pleasures of this life, then when trials come your way, certainly when the ultimate trial comes, it's nothing but tragic news. But James doesn't spend a lot of time here. He doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on people who are living on this end of the spectrum, on on side one of the spectrum. He doesn't talk to them a whole lot in this passage. Why? Why does James not hang out in this region for very long? I'll tell you, well, you guys don't know. It's good. I can tell you something you don't know. So now you're interested. Um, Most of his readers, like most of us, if asked, would have said, I'm not a story one person. I'm, I'm a story two person. If James would have like polled his readers, if I were to poll our congregation and say, how many in here are or want to be a story one person? Like, anyone? How about story two? And you're all raising your hands, right? You're all saying, yeah, story two. We want to be story two. Same with James. His readers all said, we want to be story two. So then why does he write to them? If they're already convinced that story two is the right worldview, the right perspective, the right way to live, why does James write this letter to them at all? Here's why. James knows this. 
The stories of our culture creep in. The stories of our culture, the culture we live in, the culture all around us, tend to creep into our lives. Middle school students, high school students, young people who are here, do not miss this. Your parents should pay attention as well. This is happening to you. This is happening to you. The stories of our culture are constantly creeping into your life. And the prevailing story of our culture, the culture that we are submerged in here, the story that the story that you live in online and through the media and at school will constantly and consistently tell you this. This world is all there is. You only live once. YOLO. Go for it. Get yours now. Pursue happiness and self-satisfaction and personal pleasure above all else. That's the current of our society. That's the story you are consistently and constantly being fed. It is a story one narrative. And James is writing to a group of people who, just like us, would sit in church and say, I want to live for Jesus Christ. I want to live in light of eternity. But, but, just like you and me, they have been pulled. They have been tempted. Society has started to compromise their loyalties and pull them down the spectrum. This is why in verses 6 and 8, he talks about doubt, wavering thinking, He defines it as double-mindedness. He says, there's double-mindedness alive and well amongst you. Let me warn you about it. You know what double-mindedness is all about? Doubt in this passage, they're both all about this idea, divided loyalties. He's talking about this spectrum and he's saying, you want to be story to people. You think you're story to people, but here's the truth. You're actually trying, you've been coerced into trying to live in the middle of this spectrum. You've been coerced into trying to live for God and for this world. And we remember that Jesus talks about this as well, doesn't he? Jesus addresses this very issue of trying to live in the middle of the spectrum. And what does he say? He says, you can't do it. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And James says, and you know, I can tell that you do this because I see the response that you have to trials and tribulations and temptations. He actually shows us the response of a person who's trying to live in the middle of this spectrum. And here's what it is. It's verse 13. He says, here's what a person says. When they're in the middle of the spectrum and then something comes that's hard, that's adversarial, that's difficult. When tempted, he says, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You see, one of the ways you know that your loyalties have been compromised and you've been pulled to the middle of the spectrum is that when trials and temptations start to take down the things you have in this world, the things you love in this world, the things that you've compromised on in this world where your loyalties really and truly lie along with God, you blame God. You say, God, I can't believe you've let this happen to me. I can't believe you've allowed this thing. Do you hate me? Do you even care about me, Lord? Are you even real? God, this is tragic and it's all your fault. 
That's the sign of a person who's living in the middle, who wants God and the things of this world. And if they can't have both, if God even appears to have taken away the the latter, they will turn on him in a second. Now, friends, let me be really clear here. I want to make just a quick caveat. To question God and to be angry at God and to share your emotions and feelings with God can be a really good and honest and healthy thing. We see that in the Psalms. Some of the great heroes of faith just have it out with God. They're honest and they say, this is hard and difficult and I'm upset and frustrated, even angry. We talked about that this summer. But when trials and temptations and suffering actually have the power to separate someone from God, to pull them out of that committed relationship with him. That's when we discover that even though they may have claimed to be story two, what they really cared about, what they were really living for, was probably much closer to story one than they cared to admit. So James says, my desire is for you to move down the spectrum, to come back towards story one living, a story one life. In fact, he says, church, you are to be, this is what he says in the closing verse, you are to be the first fruits of this kind of life. You're supposed to be a glimpse, a foretaste. You're supposed to be an example of what a story to life looks like in this world. That's who you are. Live into that. And so it's with this goal that James starts his letter with a word. After the salutation, after the greetings, he starts with a word. It's a super powerful word. It's the word consider. He says, consider. Just consider this. I, I have a thought for you. I have an idea. Let me offer a story one perspective for you when it comes to how you think about the trials you will face. Let me show you what a story one life looks like in the face of adversity. And friends, James knows this is so important. Why? Because he knows what you believe about the adversity you face will determine how you respond to it. I'll say that again. What you believe about the adversity you face will determine how you respond to it. That is a powerful concept, friends. It can change your life. It can change your relationships. It can change your afternoon and your lunch today and your marriage and your family. If you understand what I'm about to say in the next five minutes, there is so much power in this biblical thinking here. There's actually a a cognitive psychologist named Albert Ellis who came up with what he called the ABC model. And he really just reflects biblical thought. He really just reflects what James says here. A, according to Ellis, is for adversity, for struggles, trials that come your way. And you can't always control these. In fact, you'll notice that James doesn't say, if you ever face trials, you know, if this ever happens to you, know, he says, when trials come, because trials are coming, every single one of us will face trials, 100% success rate on that. Adversity is just a part of life. That's A. A is coming. Adversity is headed your way. You don't have much control. But then Ellis says, there's B. What you believe about the trials you face your perspective on them. And this is something, here's good news, that you do have control over. This is something you can walk into. You have some some choices to make here. What you believe, for example, if 
You faced the adversity, the trial of your son forgetting to call you on your birthday yesterday. Maybe that happened to someone yesterday. Maybe that's actually a true story and it happened to a mom. Maybe she's listening online and maybe the church had just stopped and quietly in their hearts pray for their pastor right now. <laughs> Five o'clock this morning getting ready to come to church. Oh no. That's a real moment for me. Anyway, that mom, if she's out there listening, now has a choice about what to believe. She can believe that her son is just an uncaring, unconcerned, ungrateful child. Or, or she can believe that he really does care, but was just so busy being the wonderful father and husband she taught him to be, so consumed with his sermon and preaching the word of God in a faithful way, that while he loves her dearly, it, was, it just accidentally slipped his mind. You see, this mom will have to decide... What she believes and what she believes will affect C, the choices that she makes. Will she be angry and bitter and resentful or kind and gracious and forgiving the way Jesus longs for her to be? (laughs) You see, her choices are the direct result of her belief, what she chooses to believe. What do you think she will believe? Pray with me about what she might believe. There's already been a text exchange. James says here this. Let me challenge you, church, to believe some things about the trials you will face in this world. Let me challenge your belief, your thinking, your approach, your perspective when difficulty and an adversary comes your way. And let me challenge you to find joy in them. To find joy in moments of trial and struggle for a couple reasons. And he gives us a few. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. First of all, James tells us that we can find joy in our trials because struggle reveals our character. In fact, the word James uses for trial in this passage is a Greek word, parosmos, and it literally means this, a situation, a struggle, an adversity that will reveal one's true character. It's a test that will show us what is really happening in our hearts. You see, all of us have this amazing ability to deceive ourselves about who we really are and what's really happening in us, but... Struggle, adversity, trials have a way of getting down to the heart of the matter. A number of years ago, my dad was having some tightness in his chest. Um, And so, like any good male member of society, he waited six weeks before going to the doctor to see what was happening. And so, he finally goes in after six weeks, tightness in his chest, and uh, for one of those stress evaluations. And... They do what they do when you get in there and they hooked him up to all these, you know, sensors and things and then they put him on the treadmill, right? And now they're monitoring and they're monitoring what's going on on the insides of him with his heart and he's cruising along and you have to know this about my dad. He, 
He's a big guy. He was an offensive lineman in football, so he's a big man. But he's always taken a lot of pride in his physical fitness. He swims a ton. He rides a bike a ton. Um, and he's just really, he, he'll tell you, if you talk to him, that he has a resting heart rate of 44 beats a minute, which is really low. And so he's, you know, he's very proud of his physical condition. And so he goes in, tightness in the chest, has this thing. He's run on the treadmill, right? They kind of put him through the paces. The thing ends. He goes into the, like, cool down, you know, debrief room. He's sitting on the table in there, you know, those padded tables. The nurse comes in and is talking to him about the test. And he's asking her, like, how'd I do? I did well, didn't I? I passed. I crushed it. I'm, I, I know I told you I'm in good shape. And he's, like, bragging to the nurse about the kind of shape that he's in. And he's quite confident that he did so well on this test. When all of a sudden, he codes. Has a full-on heart attack. Right there on the table, out, gone. You know those. You know how in the movies they like they do the paddle shockers. We have this sense in our world that the paddle shocker thing happens all the time because it happens so often in the movies. People are rarely paddle shocked. They have to paddle shock my father back to life. They rush him straight into surgery, and he has some stints put into like the vessels near his heart that save his life. The doctor told him later, if he had had that heart attack anywhere else besides sitting in the cath lab of a hospital, he would be dead. The doctor said, if you had that same heart attack in the parking lot of this hospital, you would not have made it. That is a miracle. It's an amazing thing. And so they're kind of debriefing with my dad for the whole thing is over. The whole procedure, the whole um, like surgery and the stints and all. And my dad's talking to the nurse and he still says to her, you know, how did I do on the stress test though? I mean, like, before the whole thing, like, did I do well? And that he's trying to convince her that he still did good on the stress test and that he passed the whole thing. And the nurse just said, well, your numbers looked pretty good during the test, but when you code afterwards, we call that the big fail. <laughs> you see, the stress and the adversity and the trial of the treadmill revealed that some things were not quite right about my dad's heart. And James says the trials we face in this world can and will reveal the same thing to us. We will find out some things about our hearts in the midst of adversity. This happens to us all the time. We face struggle and we discover that some things about ourselves may not be as good as we thought. You get stuck in traffic and you begin to say things to other drivers you would never admit to saying to someone to their face. Or someone gossips about you behind your back and you find out and then you go and you gossip about them behind their back. And what do you find out about yourself? You find out, man, maybe I'm a little more vengeful than I thought I was. Or you don't get the promotion you wanted or the grade you wanted. And so you blame the teacher or your boss as if to say, the world actually spins all around me and my needs. Maybe you didn't get the raise you thought you deserved. And then, you know, your response is, I'm just going to be a little less generous then. I'm going to give a little less away. Keep what I need, what I deserve. And you discover, man, through adversity, I guess there's some greed. There's some envy. There are other things going on in my heart that I didn't realize. Challenges we face in life reveal us. They reveal the real us. They show us the places where we are double-minded and living for things in this world that we thought were just extras. 
If you're living for a relationship more than for God, and then you lose that relationship, or the relationship goes south, there is all of a sudden this level of despair and anger and fear and hopelessness that tells you something. Maybe I was living more for that person than I thought I was. Or you're living for power or status in life and suddenly your career is gone and you're never going to make anything like the money you made before. And now all of a sudden you're forced to deal with just how important that really was in your life. You see, when you had the money, you were saying and you would tell yourself, you know, it doesn't matter that much to me. But now it's gone. Now there's trial. Now there's struggle. And now you find out the truth. And maybe you realize, I've been telling myself that I'm living for God, but in actuality, I've been leaning on this thing more than I thought I was. Paul Tillich describes it in this way. He says, Suffering takes people beneath the busyness of life and reminds them that they are not who they thought they were. Here's why I love that quote. Because so often we use the busyness of our life as a cloak and as a shield so we don't have to look beneath the surface. So we don't have to look down deep and discover what's really happening on the inside because when we do, we don't like it. And James is saying, it's actually a real good thing. He's saying, I want you to consider it an occasion for joy if for nothing else you discover a truth about you that you may not want to admit because understanding who you really are is actually a really good thing when you're trying to become a story to person. Trial is actually just an opportunity for you to discover what it is that's preventing you from living fully into the life that God longs for you to live. Trial reveals our character. And here's another reason you can have joy in the midst of trial. Trial forms our character. Trial forms you. It makes you. It creates in you what God wants to create. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's James' goal for the church, that we would be mature and complete and not lacking anything. That's his way of describing the slide down the spectrum towards story two. That's what he longs for us. Perseverance, he says, is the key Just persevering when things get hard. Perseverance actually comes from a really, really amazing Greek word. It's the mashup of two words. The words remain under. Perseverance. Remain under. See, perseverance is just to remain in that place of difficulty and hold on. Remain under the stress. Remain under the burden. Remain under the difficulty. Remain under the challenge that we feel like we just have to get out from underneath of. And we'll do anything to get out of it, to escape from it. And God says, just be faithful. Just remain. Just hold on. You know, sometimes I think the best picture of faith is just hanging in there. It's just... Hanging in there when things are real hard. Maybe some of you need to hear that today. God says, you want to know what it looks like to trust me, to have faith, to be a faithful person who perseveres? Just hang in there. 
I see you. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. Just hold on. You see, here's what a story person knows and believes. A story two person clings to this truth. God is more concerned with your character than your circumstances. And that's a real easy quote to read off the screen. That's an extremely difficult road to walk sometimes. You know what's interesting is when you talk to someone about what in their life helped them grow the most, if you ask them to share about what is it that shaped your character, most of the time people don't talk about their successes and their achievements, do they? What do they talk about? They talk about their setbacks and their struggles and their trials and their temptations and their adversities. That's when we grow. That's when our character is shaped in the fire. David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, says it this way. I love this quote. He says, When most people think about the future, they dream up ways they might live happier lives. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the crucial events that formed them, they don't usually talk about happiness. It is usually the ordeals. I love that word. It is usually the ordeals that seem most significant. Most people shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. Most people shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. And so James says this, if you are, if you long to be a story to servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to live for an eternity that goes far beyond this world, you can find joy in your trials because God is using them to form in you the character he longs for you to have. Every circumstance you face, every single circumstance in this world is temporary. Your character is not. Some of you are in really tough, difficult trials, circumstances that go way back and will go way into the future. But friends, every single one of those will end. And in light of eternity, it will just be a blip, a vapor. And James says, cling to that truth. Persevere. Just hold on. Remain under You can find joy in your trials because God is using them to form you. And then his promise is that you'll become mature and complete, not lacking anything. That you start to become the person God longs for you to become. That he'll be shaping you and showing the world through the first fruits of your life what it means to be a story two person in a story one world. Listen, you know, who, you know who lived this so brilliantly and amazing and in an amazing way? The Apostle Paul. He talks about this very truth of just remaining under, of understanding that God cares more about my character than my circumstances, of understanding that this world is just a blip, just a vapor, and I have all of eternity to live with the Lord. Paul writes these words. And by the way, when he writes these words, here's his situation, here's his circumstance. He's been beaten Within an inch of his life, 39 lashes, he's been in prison and in chain. His freedom has been taken away. And this is what he says from that place, in in the face of that trial. He says, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, that's a story to servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in spades. That's an example to follow. That's an inspiration for you in the face of whatever adversity or trial you are facing. Now let me close with this. Maybe some of you are here today and like me, you think, that sounds great. To be a story to a person, to have joy in my trials. You know, Pastor Dave, when you say it up front, it feels so good. Yes but I just don't have the strength to do it. I just don't know how to live like that in the midst of what I'm facing. And friends, the good news is this. The gospel says, I know you don't. I don't have the strength to live that way. And God says, I know you don't. Listen to verse 5, the very heart of what James says here. And we'll close with this he says if any of you lacks wisdom and wisdom is just the ability to take what is true and apply it to your life to apply this reality to our world to your circumstances he says if you lack wisdom if you lack the ability to just live into this in the way that god wants you to in the way that you know you should you should ask god who gives generously A God who wants you to remain. A God who wants you to live into it. A God who wants you to be successful. And he wants to empower you to be the person that you are supposed to be in this world. This is not a stingy God who's sitting back and saying, man, we'll see if they can do it. This is a God who's saying, invite me in because I'll do everything I can to help you. And I've given all I am to get you through. You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. You see, friends, the strength to live through our trials and temptations and adversities does not come from within. It comes from Him. That's why every single week in this church, at the end of our service, we go to the table to remind that we are not fueled from our, our from ourselves, that we're not fueled from within, but that we're fueled by the grace and strength and power of the living God, the God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross, the God who's so much more powerful than the sin and adversity and trials of this world that he took on and defeated the very greatest one of all, and that's the trial of death. And so we go to the table to say, God, I'm not in this by myself. I have you along with me. So this morning, friends, as we go to the table, if we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the victory that God won over the grave, I invite you to bring your trials, your temptations, maybe to bring where you're at on the spectrum, to bring the places where you feel you might just be tempted to live double-mindedly with divided loyalties. Just bring those to the table, to bring those to the cross, to lay them before God. And I'll tell you one other thing. Maybe you're here today and you've never made the decision, I want to be a story to person. Maybe the only story you've ever known, the only story you've ever 
heard, maybe the only story you've ever lived for is the, this world is all there is. Get all I can get. You know, grab it now because life will come and go. And it's just about as much happiness and pleasure as I can amass. And let me tell you, friends, there's a much better story. Maybe you're ready to step into that story. If you want to step into that story and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and understand that your life, this little blip, can go on forever into all eternity, just come down front. Pray with someone. Receive Jesus as Lord of your life. It is not something you have to earn. It is a free gift of grace. There'll be people on the sides here to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you in the front. There'll be folks in the back that want to pray with you. If you want to step into that story, don't do it alone. It's one of the reasons why, friends, we're doing this whole series in one-on-one relationships and in community groups because you know what? God will help us live as story to people, but, that's, but we need each other. One of the ways he, he works is through the body of Christ. Look around this room. Gabby said, grab someone in your pews. The people around you are the people that should be helping you live the story to life. So come to the table. Talk to God. Ask him what decisions you need to make. Ask him where he's moving and leading and then surrender your life. Surrender whatever he's asking you today knowing that you hand it over to a God who loves you so much that he gave his son. The tables will be open in just a minute. Take a minute. Think about what the business you need to do with the Lord and then grab the bread and the cup and receive them on your own in the pew when you're ready. Let me pray for us though as we prepare to come forward. God, I find so often that I get pulled into that double-minded living where... I want to live for you, but I'm living for other things. Reveal, Lord, inform. Use whatever you need to use to pull those things away and to pull me back towards the life you long for me to live. I pray that for every person in this room, and I pray that for us as a church, that we be the kind of community that helps one another live as completely surrendered and utterly committed servants of you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. And we pray it in the name of your Son. Amen.